if you would, take your Bible this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. It's always remarkable to think and to consider together, especially it, it has been for me for a number of years to, to consider the use of our time as we continue to reflect during our stewardship month and evaluate various ways and places uh, in which we choose to spend our time. And time is one of those tricky elements in this reality is that once it's gone, you never get it back. Everything you choose to do, every place you tend to go, every amount of uh, things that are going on in your life, you don't get to go back and replay that. And we'll often even say things like, if I could just go back in time. I mean, you think about how many movies have been, have been done about being able to go back in time and readjust something someone has done to try to correct a mistake that somebody, that they themselves have made. It's, it's astounding. Time is an interesting element. It, it's also interesting in our culture and cross-culturally. I remember traveling when I was in, in Africa and I went into Zambia and I was teaching uh, alongside uh, a team of teachers uh, just, just on close to the border of the Congo. And I remember uh, the organizer of the trip said, you know, we had a tentative schedule, but in, in Africa they said, he's, I said, so when do, we, when do we begin? He said, well, I mean, people will just start coming in and then we'll just kind of decide when everything's supposed to get started. You know, for a Western American individual who's, who's built in a cultural society where punctuality means something, could you imagine showing up at work like that? Like, we'll just wait till everyone gets here. Can you imagine starting church until everyone got here? We might not begin until a little bit later. The reality is, is time is a very challenging subject, but it is a very important subject because we don't get it back, we don't get to go back and replay events of our life, and we have to value and steward the time that you have been given. In fact, just this last week, uh, you know, you think to yourself, God gave you a number of subsequent days, a number of minutes and seconds and hours for you to utilize and it is your duty and my duty as a Christian to, as, as we evaluate, how did I spend these moments of my life? How did I take advantage of moments as a parent where my children were still in the home? Did I take time for family worship? Did I take time for prayer? Did I take time for Bible reading? You know, one of the number one excuses we often give ourselves, as you guessed it, I don't have time. The reality is, if that were the case, then I don't know what God was doing about making a 24-hour day. Because he seemed to think that that amount of time was enough for us. The problem is, is that we often don't utilize the moments that, he's been give, that he has sovereignly given to us in a way that will be pleasing to him. And that's where I want to challenge us this morning. Now, as I do, one, one of the years that I had uh, done a stewardship sermon, uh, and I had done it on the stewardship of time, you notice perhaps this hourglass, uh, this is not for me timing my sermon. I got a clock up there. Uh, and you're far enough away, if I turned it over, you couldn't see the little sand in there anyway. Some uh, dear brother in Christ, I don't even know who they were, after that sermon was really challenged, and all of a sudden at the doorstep of my office in an Amazon package was this. 
Now, I don't know if that said something about my sermon, but I think it said something about the importance of a visual image about the fact that our lives are, are short. You know, I keep this on my desk in my office ever since that moment so that every day I come into my office, I see this. And I'm reminded to myself, you know what? I have been given a limited amount of time and every day that goes by, a little bit more sand is draining into that glass of my life. And I can't get it back. Every portion, every response, every circumstances uh, that God has sovereignly allowed, good or challenging or suffering, will pass. And there is something that is going to happen when the, when the hourglass of my life runs to completion. And I will stand before the King of Kings and will give an account for all the ways in which I have used my time. Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, seem to come to the reality that this is a very significant, uh, this is very significant in the life of the believer. Now let me just give you a setting before we read Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. Of course, if you understand the chronology of Jesus' life and his earthly ministry, what you'll realize is that the Olivet Discourse takes place in, uh, on the Tuesday of the Passion Week. Now Jesus is already ridden into the city. He has already proclaimed himself as king. All the palm branches have been thrown down. Jesus is teaching. People aren't happy with some of the teaching that is going on. And the disciples are responding. They're super excited. They think, look at all these people. They're hailing Jesus as king. The kingdom has to be coming right now. We are on the cusp of, of the ages coming to an end where all that we have read about is going to come true. Conversations amongst the disciples turn to things like who's greatest in the kingdom. Conversations turning like, well, you're gonna, where are we going to be? What's our position? The disciples are wondering. In fact, they're so fixated on this reality, and of course, if you were them, you would have been too. Because of all the things that they had understood in the Old Testament, Jesus fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies that, that talked about the coming, suffering Messiah. And he was there before their eyes. Now when you think about it, in the Olivet Discourse, don't uh, just get too confused when you hear the idea of the Olivet Discourse. Uh, the Mount of Olives is really all that means. And discourse is just the idea of teaching. So it's the teaching Jesus did on the top of the Mount of Olives. On that day when he and his disciples went back, you can back up for just a moment, uh, in chapter 24, you notice this statement at the beginning of the Olivet Discourse. It says, Jesus left the temple because he was teaching there on Tuesday of the Passion Week, and he was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the building of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. See, he had to calibrate the mindsets of the disciples because as they were walking, and if you could just picture it to the east of the temple where Jesus would go and retreat after a ministry day during the Passion Week, he would travel up the Mount of Olives and they got to the top of the Mount of Olives and the disciples stopped for a moment. And I'll tell you, if, if, if you could understand, if you stood at the, at the base of the retaining wall of the broken down temple, you would understand just how massive 
this infrastructure of the temple was by Herod. The Jewish temple filled with gold, now glittering in the sunlight, as the disciples looked back and said, and, and no doubt we're thinking, Jesus, look at this temple. Could you imagine what they had to grapple with in their own minds? You see that temple? How great you think that is? There's not going to be one stone that is going to be left, not fallen. You know, at that moment, they had to be thinking to themselves, like, what? Like, they just hailed you as king. You're offering the kingdom. But now Jesus is at a time point in his earthly ministry where he knew that the fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah, that the suffering Messiah would come, in whose bruise and stripes we would, we, we would be healed as he would die a death that we could not die for ourselves so that we could live for eternity with Jesus Christ if we repented and trusted, our, uh, trusted in Christ for our sins. Here this sets the stage for Matthew 25 because Jesus is trying to help his disciples and those around him understand that time is short. And let me just say this is just before I begin to read this. If you are here and you are not a believer and you are breathing, you have time to trust in Jesus Christ before it is too late. Christian, if you are here and breathing, please don't stop doing that. You have time to alter your life and adjust it in a way that when the master comes, he will find you doing the things that are most pleasing to him. We have time, and yet our time is running short. The cosmic timetable of a sovereign God is limited, and it will come to a conclusion at some point in which we do, we do not know. And the transfixed nature of this idea of time, Jesus picks up on because the Disciples and the Jewish people thought Jesus would come and set up his kingdom, and yet Jesus knew in the parables that there was going to be another coming, a second coming, a second coming in which we still await, and he picks up on that theme in the Olivet Discourse over and over and over again so that you and I would grapple with how we are challenged with these moments of time that we get to embrace. Read with me as I read Matthew 23. So then Jesus said to the crowds, oh, let me skip over back or up a one. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know 
neither the day nor the hour. And that was the whole question in Matthew 24 that was proposed by the disciples. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse number 3, And he sat on the Mount of Olives with the disciples that came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? See, at the very beginning of the Olivet Discourse, all of a sudden, the disciples proposed this question to Jesus, saying, what's going to be the signs and the time of your coming? And that's why Jesus picks up on this over and over again. And it's important as we think about this particular reality to remember this kind of main idea as we walk through this uh, parable of the ten virgins, that being aware is not the same as being alert. And I would say that's true any time on a Sunday morning that I look out in the congregation. Being aware and being alert is different. Another way simply to state this that really gets on the moral of this particular story is that the pro a profession of the faith is not the same as possession of the faith. See, you realize that even in amongst your group of people who come and gather on any particular Sunday morning, on any particular uh, a day that we worship, people can come and they have very much may make a profession of faith. They may seem to dress, they may seem to look the way a Christian should look and do the things that a Christian should do. But I am convinced over a number of years of pastoral ministry that many people who anchor themselves to their profession only there are moments that they come to realize that they really don't possess the faith and the Holy Spirit that was supposed to indwell them. They came to church because that's what their parents told them to do. They said that, ask Jesus into your heart prayer that is so infamous. Or we think you just say that little prayer. Of course, we understand it's a prayer of faith and repentance and trust. People who have come to church and says, well, this is what I've always known. See, just because you grow up in Christianity, just because you grow up in a Christian home, doesn't make you a Christian. Christians are those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, in the scriptures that tell us that alone. As you and I think about this particular parable, I want to cover these, this particular portions. I want to talk about the message. I want to talk about the maidens. I want to talk about the moral of this story that comes in verse number 13. One, why is this message so significant? Well, because Jesus in the midst of his passion week, and we won't spend long here, but I just want to make us aware that the timing of this particular parable of the ten virgins is critical. Now, if you think, well, what's a parable? Well, a parable is often an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So often as people read parables and commentators uh, dialogue on what parables mean, they often get so fixated on what every symbolic perspective of what person is meant in the parable. Jesus' point of the entire parable is wrapped up in verse 13. It's not so that we would get sidetracked on who do the maidens represent and all of those. We're going to unpack that. But the reality is, is he wants us to understand something about our preparedness and our alertness because our time is short. Jesus' time was short. 
Jesus is now days away from from when Judas would meet them in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and betray him with a kiss. They are days away before Jesus knew that the disciples, once they took the shepherd, that his disciples would scatter. They were days away from probably the single most horrific, excruciating crucifixion that he knew as he prayed in the garden and, sweat, and, and would have sweat drops of blood pour out of his pores, begging God in his humanity if there was any other way. And Jesus was trying to impact on, on, on his own heart as, 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 a, as the Savior, as the heart of the disciples, those who would hear him, our time is short. Do you notice this? Look at this and, and just follow along. I have them here for you. You can mark them if you'd like as you turn. But notice Jesus' reference to time in the Olivet Discourse. But concerning that day in verse 36, he says, an, an hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Notice this in Matthew 24, 42. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on the day uh, on what day your Lord is coming? Can you imagine the disciples like, no, you have come and you're staying. I mean, you remember when Jesus tried to propose to Peter that he was going to die and on the third day be rose again and Peter grabbed a hold of him and said, that's not going to happen. And Jesus said those words, get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking with the mind of God. See, that's what prohibits our time, by the way, and the use of our time, because often we think only in our own framework, I want certain things, I want to accomplish certain things, I want to do certain things, I want to get married, I want to have kids, I want to do this, I want to go to this place or that place. You've got a bucket list of things to do, and there are things that are important. There's nothing wrong with having a bucket list, I hope, because there's things that I would still like to do. But I'll tell you what, they pale in comparison to the reality that when God says my time is done, the one thing I, one place I want to visit more than any other place is heaven. And man, as Christians, I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, as a, as a believer who has repented and trusted, trusted in Jesus Christ and is held in the strength of, of his hand, guess what? I am going to check that off my bucket list one day, and I am going to be there. And I'm going to look, and I'm going to thank him, and I'm going to worship him. In the meantime, I want to make sure that I'm being attentive to the reality of time. Notice he goes on in verse 44. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And in verse number 50, he says, The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. At an hour, he does not know him. He does not know. Now, why would Jesus emphasize the issue of alertness? Well, one, if you read the Olivet Discourse and understand the priority of the chronology of Daniel and understand what's going on, you've got a whole series of signs because the disciples are asking, when are you coming? What is the day? And what is the end? when will the end of the age be? Now, Jesus said, not even the angels know, not even the Son knows. Now, of course, Jesus, now enthroned in heaven, with all the majesty and and former glory that he had from 
from the ages, from eternity past, he knows now, but in his earthly submission, Jesus is saying, not the angels, not even the Son of Man at this moment knows. He wants us to be alert because what is happening in the Olivet Discourse is Jesus is going to step away and he is going to go, just like in Matthew 25 or in many of the other parables where Jesus said, a king went into a far country. And here in our parable, it's the bridegroom. It's the bridegroom that was delayed. And it's the expression in the parable that Jesus was not fulfilling a timetable that they all anticipated, but had a timetable of his own. And the signs of the coming of the end of the age would come with levels of birth pangs. That he talked about people who would come and say, I'm the Christ, and other earthquakes and all kinds of other signs. And he says, no, that's not even the end. He says, then you get to the middle portion of the Olivet Discourse, and he says, no, in verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation, and if you go to Daniel, you understand that the abomination of desolation is is the midway point of what Daniel describes three and a half years into the tribulation period. And he says, as the time comes, it will get worse and worse and worse. And he says, then there will be a sign, the coming of the Son of Man, who the, the, the skies will part. And the sign will be the Son of Man himself who parts the clouds and rescues his people. And I think part of his reality is helping them realize is that you still have time and ministry and things to get done as the master is now going to leave and the bridegroom will depart and will come back at an hour that you and I do not know. Christians, there is a certain reality that we cannot live uh, properly as a Christian if we don't take into account that we only take life one day, one minute, one second at a time. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. So if you think to yourself, you hear the gospel, perhaps you hear it this morning as an unbeliever and you are brought here and you're thinking, I'm gonna think about that a little while. Can I just challenge you, be careful because he may come at an hour that you don't know and you will experience all kinds of heartache. And what Jesus is saying in the Olivet Discourse says is that those people who remain, even during the tribulation period, will have a point to repent and turn to Jesus Christ all the way up until the point where Jesus Christ comes to rule and reign and he separates the believing from the unbelieving in the great white throne judgment of Revelation. And it is out of this context and out of this message that he picks up and we understand. Now he's using some cultural understandings of the parable. He's using a marriage, if you didn't, if you didn't notice it. He's talking about the maidens who would accompany the, the bride. But the main focus, by the way, in the parable is the bridegroom. Now let me, let's talk just a little bit about historical context of weddings because it's so different than what we understand uh, within our culture. In a Jewish culture, there typically were kind of three facets to a wedding. There was a level where there was uh, uh, an engagement-type period, and there was an agreement that two fathers would come together. They would make an agreement of a bride price where that agreement would be struck, which a period ensued called the betrothal period. This betrothal period was so critical in the life of, of Jewish marriages that it was considered marriage from that point forward. 
So much to the point that if you wanted to be unmarried, even in the betrothal period, before the, the, the marriage had been consummated physically, you still had to have a bill of divorce. That's how serious the betrothal period was. Now, during that time of betrothal, often what would happen in a clan-type community is the bride, or the, the bride would go back with other individuals. They lived with their respective families, and she would go, and she's preparing, and he primarily, the bridegroom, is going to prepare a place where they would one day stay. Now, in the Jewish culture, typically that meant the married man or the betrothed man would go to his, 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 his father's household, and he would start building on a room. I know you young people are thinking to yourself, the last place you want to build onto is your parents' house. But that was the culture. You were enveloped with family and community and, and synagogue life and all of these elements. And the bridegroom, the, uh, the bridegroom would go away. Now, if you want to think, if you, were in the, if you were a builder, okay, and you were building on the addition of your home, and you were waiting to get married based upon how quick and how long you could work, how many hours do you think you'd be putting in? You'd be like, I'm going to go get that girl. I can't get her until my house is done. And this is the imagery that Jesus is using. The bridegroom goes away. Notice, this is what Jesus is saying in John chapter 16. I go and prepare a place for you so that when you come, I will receive you unto myself so that where I am, you can be also. He's building a place for us. The bridegroom has gone. And we are awaiting his return of his people. And now this is the imagery that he gives of these maidens. And the maidens, by the way, uh, depending on what translation, you might say, uh, they say ten girls, ten maidens, ten virgins. Uh, the reality of that is in the Jewish culture that often the maidens that accompanied the bride were, were chaste. They had never known a man before. It was the reality of some, the, the perspective where they were also too supposed to get excited at one day they too would experience a marriage. They were together. Well, at this particular time period, he's using this to say, they got word, or they began to know the time had passed enough that the bridegroom, was the bridegroom was probably close to being done. Something was going to happen. And so now, these particular maidens come on the scene, and we begin to start hearing about their lives. Now, think of that contextual circumstance. To emphasize this, the wedding procession. Oh, if you understand, uh, uh, you read history on Jewish weddings, one of the things that you come to realize is when, when they had a wedding, they got it on, and they danced, they excited, they were, I mean, we were in Israel one of the times, and all of a sudden, uh, a bar mitzvah procession came through. I mean, people were jumping and dancing, and horns were blowing, and all of this excitement to bring the reality of the message that the bridegroom is coming, the wedding feast is about to start, everything is going to be consummated. All oh, this was a very special time period. For weeks, the families of the bride and groom would prepare for enough food. It was a community event. This was a big deal. And we think about these maidens, there was this reality that went through in these particular individuals. And and we recognize that part of the message that he wanted to give is about these maidens and, and these two individuals, or these two groupings of maidens. There were five that were wise, and there were five that were foolish, and it revolved around this idea of taking flasks of oil. Because when the procession came, what would happen is, 
somebody would alert them, the bridegroom is on his way, and they would all meet, okay, and often, now think about this, he said, and at an hour of midnight, and that's not to say that, that, please don't be fixated on time, like, ah, we know, at midnight, at some night, Jesus is coming, you don't. The reality here is saying it was at an hour that they didn't know. Now, they did it somewhat at night because they're preparing their lamps. Think about the lighted procession and excitement that would take place for the whole community. They had no problem, in some sense, celebrating at night. Okay, that was just part of the way their culture would do things. Well, these foolish maidens thought to themselves, well, all of a sudden, the bridegroom was delayed. And you begin to notice this, especially in Matthew 25, verse 5. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Now, don't read this parable and you get to this point where the maidens were drowsy and they slept, or just the fact that it was maidens. And, and, and as a guy, don't be looking at it and saying, see, these women are the problem. That's not it. The issue is alertness. Now, the drowsiness was not a problem. It wasn't Jesus saying, you shouldn't have fell asleep. Because as they were preparing, they would have all their belongings. You could sleep with great confidence that when the bridegroom was told that he was coming, that you'd have everything in order to wake up, get your things for the procession, and head on out. The problem with the foolish maidens was, is they went to sleep having not been prepared. See, in application, I think this is reality for all of us who wait the coming of Jesus Christ and his return is that we often, in the midst, and it's not the problem that we sleep if we need sleep. The issue is our lack of preparedness. I wonder how many of us will actually quickly evaluate and realize how foolish we have spent time, the time that God has sovereignly given, when all of a sudden we are in a situation to have to realize it's here. I would encourage you, Christian, that's the whole point of our stewardship month is to evaluate your life. Here you have a stewardship commitment card in which only you and you alone before God will see. And you think about it. Here, these, these perspectives. Like, who, who do you need to spend time with? Who will you give your time to in this upcoming year? Who will you allow into your life? What kind of time will you set aside for building up of your marriage? What kind of time will you spend, mom and dad, with your kids, knowing that there is a point coming where your kids will move out of your household and the time that you have, you will not have again? And you will look at pictures, as I often do, and think, where did the time go? And you long to bounce those little children on your knee once again, to sleep in your favorite chair with your child laying on your shoulder, only to see them now grown, making decisions, living life, either loving God or loving themselves. It's so critical for us to evaluate this, our work, our priorities, our planning, where we set limits. We live in such an indulgent culture, by the way, that we are so fixated in all the distractions that, that come our way. And one of, the, one of the huge ways in which we falter in areas of our time is that we just get so encompassed with so many distractions of social media and TV and Netflix and YouTube and Instagram and whatever else is going out there. 
you notice that you can go on there and you could spend hours and it only seems like seconds. You know, you can all of a sudden play video games and all of a sudden fixate your time. Oh, I have watched people over the course of their life spend hours, and I mean 25 plus hours or 30 plus hours a week playing video games. Now, I know everybody's hating me now. Now, the reality is, as long as the content of the game is not the problem, but you really do want to make sure that you're, you're not being controlled by anything other than the work of what God has set you as a as task for you to do as a Christian. He wants you to enjoy life, and that includes some of these things, but to a measurement in which it's balanced. I'm not, I don't want everybody going, I was like, whoa, pastor told us to throw out our TV and all the garbage people are getting all of our Cape Bible Chapel people stuff. The point is, how are you managing what he's given you to manage as a good steward before him? Are you foolish with your time in the midst of it? Do you realize we don't know when he's going to come back? He's coming and he's going to rapture the church according to what 1 Thessalonians 4 says. And there's a point for us, even though the, the time period of the Olivet Discord will come, just come at the end of the tribulation, of which I don't believe I'm going to be here, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, where he's going to rapture me, but the time sequence is the same. I don't know when the rapture will take place, therefore I must be prepared to do the things that God wants me to do, otherwise time is short, and I'll look back and say, what happened? Well, these wise maidens, on the other hand, when the, when the bridegroom was told that they came, it's very interesting because the bridegroom was said that he's here, and all of a sudden they, they got up and they gathered their, their torches, and that's the idea. They gathered their torches, they would wrap uh, linen around these things, and they would soak them with oil, but in order for them to be part of the procession and to be known as part of the procession, they had to have their lamp lit. That would identify them as part of the procession. In reality, if your lamp was going out, they're wondering, are you really part of this wedding? Are you really part of this family? What are you doing here? And Jesus often picks up on that imagery about people being at a feast and who should be there and who should not. And the wise individuals had already had all the preparations. They had with them a flasks of oil so that they could continue to relight that torch in the midst of the procession so they could get to the destination and celebrate the, with the wedding party the way God intended it to be celebrated. The foolish individuals looked at the ones who were wise and they said to these other maidens, give us some of your oil. And they're like, yeah, but then we're not going to have enough. And this is going to be a problem because then how are they going to know we're part of the procession? They said, go out to the marketplace. Now think about the timing of this. Here, at least in the parable, it's midnight. And when the Jewish culture and Jewish, uh, Jewish life and, and structure of marketplace, they could go and buy a flask of oil in the middle of the night. They would just have to go bang on the door long enough to wake up the one who owns the marketplace so that he'd come out and get the oil. Now, how much time would that take if they had to go do that, wake him up, get him to be alert enough, oh, you need oil, and then get back to the procession? That's the whole reality of the parable. They said, go, because you've been unwise, go get your oil. So they ran off to the marketplace. By the time that they had returned, 
The procession had already gone in, and in Matthew 25, he gives this, he gives this statement. And they go to the door, and the other maidens, the five foolish maidens, come and say, Lord, Lord, we're here. Let us in. And this is an alarming statement. He said, truly I say to you, I don't know you. This is verbiage that Jesus is using to say, not everyone is going to be part of the marriage supper of the Lamb. There will be people who get in and people who are professors of faith but not possessors of faith. It is very akin to Matthew 7 when he says, some will say to me, Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say. And I will say to them, Jesus says, depart from me, for I never knew you. Oh, Christian, this is, a, this is so important for us when we think about the time that you have been given. You are breathing, you are here. Jesus has not returned to take us yet. Repent of your sins. Or you will be in a circumstance where the master of the house, the bridegroom, says to you, I don't know you. And on that day, you will give an account and you will remember that you had time and you heard the message and you rejected the bridegroom. And to think to yourself, oh, the horrific thought that there will be people that are standing outside. I mean, this is the imagery. And they will never enter in to the glories of heaven. It is akin in the Olivet Discourse to all of a sudden when the doors were shut on the ark and it began to rain. And he says, the doors are locked. Everybody who's inside is safe. And everyone who's outside is going to be damned for eternity. That is a real reality for every person who lives on the face of this earth. Which is why, Christians, we must take our time to share the good news of the gospel and take our time to say, I want to share this with people. I want to mark aside time so that I'm, I'm really asking myself, do I even share the gospel with my own children? Do they hear the gospel? Do they see the gospel in my life? Do I help them learn what, looking, what, what managing their time looks like? Even just last night as we were functioning in our, in our family worship before Sunday, we're just going around the room asking, okay, where could we shore up some, some squandering of time? And we're sharing with each other and trying to help each other think, what do we have to do here? If God gives us more time, we, we, can't, be, we can't keep doing certain things. We have to make sure that we're managing it well. Why? Because the moral of the story in verse number 13 is stated in this way. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Oh, this challenges my soul so much because there are so many ways in which we know people. You know people. People in your family, people who are close to you, people who are friends of yours, people who you have spent significant amounts of time with, and yet they have not embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ and repented of their sins. And they might even profess it, but they show no fruit, they show nothing. And there will be a day where all is laid bare for them. 
doesn't it just pain your soul to realize that these are people that you have rubbed shoulders with, people you went to work with, family members that you've loved? It should grip your soul enough to say, what am I doing? Who, who do I need to set up a coffee with? And just love them, care for them, try to instigate a conversation of the gospel. Christians, the world is coming to an end. And I'm not saying that as your pastor as a doomsday at tomorrow at noon. I'm saying to you, it's coming to an end at an hour that we don't know. He will come and he will get his church and he will rapture the saints and he will usher in, according to Daniel's timetable, one of the single most horrific moments of all earth history that will make the time period of the Holocaust look like a walk in the park. So that he could say, be on alert. Christians, we have been bought with a price. Paul says, glorify God in your body. Redeem the time. Paul says in Ephesians 5, as we read in our scripture reading, because the days are evil. Christian, are you on alert? Are you just aware of it, but as the bridegroom delays, have you grown weary in some sense and you find yourself doing things you shouldn't be doing, partying and carrying on and doing all kinds of things and all of a sudden you evaluate your life and you think, I shouldn't be doing that. Take your Christian walk seriously. Let's take it seriously as a collective community. This is one of the reasons why the stewardship commitment for you as you evaluate before God, where are you spending your time? Simple practice, by the way, if you want to figure out where you're spending your time, spend a week or two doing a journal of every second of your day, minus when you go to sleep, but track when you go to sleep. You'll find out rather quickly where you were and what you're doing and what kind of time you're spending and where. I'll tell you, every single time I do this as a practice, I am astounded, and I feel like I do try to pay attention to it, but I am astounded at different places of which I'm squandering time. And that doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're going to be perfect at it. You won't. But I will encourage you, be truthful with yourself about how you use your time. Let me give you another lesson that I think is important for us to learn. One, another one, lesson two. You can only control your own amount of time. You can't control the lives of other people. As you realize, as you look at the lives of other people, people you genuinely care about, people that you will hear, people that you love, could be a son, could be a daughter, could be a family member, could be a cousin, could be a husband or a wife or, or, or a friend. You realize you so badly want them to know and embrace what, what, what you have come to understand, which is the truth of the gospel, but you can't make the decision for them. But what you can do is you can make decisions for yourself to live responsibly before God. There's no greater pain at times in parental guidance when at times you, you wish you could force a level of preparation on your children. Think about this. And they're kind of like, maybe. They're like, I had to get to like 44 for, before I felt like I had any level of wisdom to give you. But I got it now. And I'm going to give it to you. Eh, maybe some other day. 
You can't control your kids. You can't control your spouse. You can't control people in the church. You can't control your coworkers. But you can make a choice of how you control yourself and your mind and your heart and how you steward the time that you have. Be busy at evaluating your own heart before you get busy evaluating the hearts of everybody else. Because you and I, we will stand accountable alone before him. Here's another lesson. Guys, look forward to the day the bridegroom's coming. I mean, there's going to be a day when we hear, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, the trumpet of God will sound and we will meet the bridegroom. Oh, guys, I, I don't know about you, but it's going to be one of the most single glorious moments of your life. You get that security because he loved you, he died for you, and provided salvation for all people so that people who repented and trusted could be saved. And believer, if that's you and you've embraced his gospel, you're going to see him. Be happy about that, joyous, thankful. Allow your prayers to be impacted by it. Don't be a complaining individual in the process of waiting. And lastly, the main moral of this particular parable, be prepared. Take your growth seriously. Figure out where your time is being spent. Because at the very end of the day, the reality is, is you and you alone and me and me alone will stand before God for how I have lived my life as a good steward and taken, taken real uh, evaluation of the time that I've spent here on earth. And I only get one lifetime. But I'm so thankful for the lifetimes of so many other people who used their lifetime to impact mine. Discipleship is a critical component. Find yourself discipling people. Find yourself at the busyness of, of helping care for the souls of both people who need Christ and you evangelize them and the souls of Christians who need to grow in Christ. Oh, if those people would have not taken parts of their moments of time and invested into my life, none of us, of those people who have been in our lives, we would not be the same people. Be one of those people who when you, when you are dead and gone, other people can say, by God's grace, this person didn't, wasn't selfish with their time. They loved me enough to, not, to allow me to inconvenience their life on a regular basis, and I grew as a result of it because they used their time in a way that was pleasing to God. Be one of those people. I want to end with this as we look at, as we look at this particular verse, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, as we find ourselves in this alert preparation period, Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself, or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And the test he's talking about is the test of genuine faith. Did you believe that Jesus was who God said he was? Is he the living God come in the flesh to save your soul? Did you have a problem? You had sin in your life and so did I. I needed Jesus to deal with my sin so that I could have the righteousness placed upon my account so that I could be saved 
and I could examine myself based upon the test of faith and say, I repented of my sin. And now that genuine repentance bore fruit. And yes, Christians, we are supposed to examine fruit. That's the point. If all of a sudden you see in one another's lives areas where consistently, don't jump on everything, but consistently you see a lack of preparation and evaluation, help each other filled with grace, speak the truth in love. Help each other prepare for the day when the bridegroom will return. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your incredible kindness to us, Lord, for the parable of the ten maidens. Lord, where you give us a lesson and challenges us with our preparation for when the bridegroom will come. The time is fixed in your timetable, Lord, and yet we don't know it, which means you've given us time, even now as we live and breathe, to help us think, to help us worship, to help us prepare, so that when the bridegroom comes, he will find us waiting for him, ready to celebrate, Lord, all the wondrous glories of the cross of Christ and the benefits that we get to that are in store for us that come when he returns. Lord, help us to be mindful of our time this morning. In your name we pray, amen.